The book of Romans in the chapter 1. The book of Romans in the chapter 1. So we continue through this series of what saith the Scriptures. We come uh, to the final, really, of our considerations of uh, a look at the modern-day world in which we live. We've done so on a political level. We've done so on an economic level, an environmental level. And then we've also looked at it socially. And then last week we began to look at it spiritually, and tonight, of course, we will conclude our thoughts on that. In the weeks that remain to us, we're past the halfway point of this season of the Bible classes, and so in the weeks that remain to us, we'll really look at the consummation of all things as God's program for the ages progresses from this point even forward. What saith the Scriptures in light of what we can expect even in the days and the months and the years to come. And so I pray that as we consider these things, that they will continue to be an encouragement to us, a blessing to our hearts, and they give us much hope and days of uncertainty, days of hardship for us all, days whenever there is much that could get us downcast. Nevertheless, we are reminded in the Word of God that we have a hope that endures. And we praise the Lord that indeed our hope is steadfast and sure. And that is the purpose, that's the intent of this study, uh, to rekindle that hope and to renew that hope in us and to refocus our minds even upon that hope that truly as we live through these times that the Lord might allow us to prevail and to overcome. This evening we come to consider the matter of gospel preaching, the centrality really of the gospel message and its purpose even in local churches such as ours, but also to remark, of course, upon the reality of the circumstances of the days in which we live. And once again, I remind you that, yes, there'll be many things that could perhaps discourage, but nevertheless, I trust that the Lord will bless these things to us and help us to see past all of that and we be even we, uh, refocused, as it were, on our own personal efforts and indeed our corporate effort to uphold the truth of His Word and to steadfastly preach the gospel. And so to that end, let's read together from the verse 1 of Romans. And the Word of God says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Note there, right at the entrance door of this great letter, even how he just nails his colors to the mast. He's separated to be an apostle, and, or sorry, he's called to be an apostle, but he's separated unto the gospel of God. And you know, the doctrine of separation remains to be the watchword for believers to this day, but we're not separated unto nothing. We are separated unto God. Just as Paul here identified even the focus of his separation, the gospel of God, then I remind you that even our separation from the world, we're in the world, we're not off the world, but we're to live lives that are separate even from those who are off the world. And nevertheless, as we are separated, we're separated onto the gospel of God. And let that even predominate our thoughts as we continue, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, 
To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established, that is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles." I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Amen. And so reads the word of the Lord. So tonight it is, of course, our stated desire to consider the true, uh, the place, sorry, consider the place given to true gospel preaching. 
But really, in order to do so, we must consider afresh the importance of the gospel message. Here, Paul is writing to a church at Rome, a church that he identifies as being one in which he desires to spend time ministering that uh, work that God has given to him and seeking to be a blessing to them as he knows that they too are and indeed will be a blessing to him. But the importance of the gospel message is signified really by what is found there at the end of the chapter and then continuing into chapter 2 also as he identifies the realities of the times, the social conditions in which he ministers and he indeed knows that the church there at Rome ministers. But through it all, note there that buried right in the heart of this first chapter, we have this declaration that's given that he is ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And why? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God unto salvation. He has traveled many miles already. He's ministered to many people already. And now he has seen uh, firsthand the power of the gospel as it takes effect in the lives of those whom God has granted him the privilege and opportunity to minister to already and desires then to see the same power unleashed as the gospel is preached in the place called Rome. He knows that it is able to mend even these crooked ways. He knows that it is able to rescue even those who are found involved in such things as we have listed there at the end of our chapter. And note the similarities then between what is listed at the end of our chapter to things that we have already considered in his letters to Timothy and indeed highlighted as being the social conditions of our day also. And truly then we are reminded through this reading already that just as Paul had a deep-rooted desire to preach the gospel and had a deep-rooted faith that the power of the gospel was able to change the times and indeed the people of the times in which he lived, so too that is our same understanding today. It's to be our same understanding today. Paul it was who made that grand declaration. He saw even the value of the gospel message that he was called to preach. So too, you and I then must remind ourselves that that same gospel message contains the same power today and thus should have the same value in our lives and indeed our ministry. Now, what is the gospel message? Again, we refer to Paul, who speaks so clearly and succinctly on this as writing to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians in the chapter 15. He says that he is declaring unto them the gospel how that Christ died for our sin, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again, according to the Scriptures. And so, he summarizes the gospel gospel message, really, as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this message, then, of the finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. We're dying as a sacrificial lamb. He paid our debt. He shed His precious blood so that sinners just like you and I might be saved. It is a message of which Paul was not ashamed and it was this message he identified as being the power of God unto salvation here in this first chapter of the book of Romans. And it's this message that I remind you tonight is still able to save to the uttermost in our day and in our generation. You see, tonight we are a people who are under obligation. An obligation to preach this message of the gospel. To take this message of the gospel to the region in which we live and to assist in taking the gospel message to the regions and world beyond where we live so that disciples of Jesus Christ 
might be made. This obligation is derived from the great commission that we have received. For it was, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself who commanded his disciples before he left this scene of time to carry on this gospel ministry. Let's remind ourselves of the three clear instances that are given to us of this great commission. We turn then, first of all, to Matthew's gospel in the chapter 28. For this really then provides for us the basis of understanding as to the work that we are called, even in our day and generation, 2,000 years separate from the time period in which these words were written, these words were recorded, these words were shared. Nevertheless, we are to continue that very same work today. Matthew's Gospel in the chapter 28, we read then in the verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, that's the eleven disciples, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. It's a continuing work. Look in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 16. Mark's Gospel in the chapter 16. And again, he's speaking uh, to his disciples. Verse 14, it says, Afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover." So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Come to Luke's gospel in the chapter 24. Luke's gospel in the chapter 24. We see in Matthew's gospel, it's a continuing work. It's to continue even unto the end of the age. We see in Mark's gospel that it was a confirmed work. God would bless the preaching of the gospel. In the apostolic age, it was confirmed by signs, wonders, and tongues. In the days whenever these things ceased and the churches were established and the gospel message was to go on forth, it was confirmed then in the salvation of souls and the adding to of the church in every location where the gospel was preached. Now let's look in Luke's gospel. In the chapter 24, and we read together in the verse 45, it tells us there that then he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. 
Here we see in the words that he speaks in verse 46, a direct parallel to that which Paul records in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How the gospel, this is the gospel he's speaking of. Why? Because he identifies the sufferings, how that he died. He identifies the fact that he rose from the dead. He was buried and then he rose again, all according to the scripture. So undoubtedly here in Luke's gospel, he's referring to that gospel message and he's commanding his followers once more to take that very same message and to preach it in all nations beginning at Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and onto the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we see there in Matthew's gospel that indeed that it was a continuing ministry, it was a confirmed ministry according to uh, uh, for Mark's gospel. But here in Luke's gospel, we are reminded that it is a ministry of the, it's also a ministry assisted by the comforter. Because we know, of course, that it was the Holy Spirit of God that these disciples were commanded to tarry uh, until they had received the power of. That power from on high was the blessed, a paraclete, the blessed Holy Ghost himself, whom God the Son said that he would send into the world, that he might be the blessed comforter who would lead, guide, and empower us, even with that which was required to continue this work of gospel ministry. And so it was this work which was to be the focus then of the individual believer and the corporate assembly of believers. We are to be witnesses. Ye are witnesses, individual. But ye are witnesses collectively. So individually, we are to be involved in gospel ministry, but collectively, as we come together as an assembly of believers, we are to be involved in that very same gospel ministry too. So that shifts our emphasis and our shifts our focus automatically to the local church. My go-to definition of a local church has always been this. It's a local assembly of baptized believers who have voluntarily joined themselves together to fulfill the Great Commission. A local assembly of baptized believers who have voluntarily joined themselves together to fulfill the Great Commission. And that's exactly what a local church should be engaged in. It's made up of those who have known the power of the gospel in their own lives, who have come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And now they have that desire, that burning desire, being a people who are under an obligation to take that gospel message and to preach it, not only in the place where they are located, but also to assist in the preaching of it in the regions beyond. And so taking for, our, uh, for taking for our example this local church, just for a few moments, let's identify just how much of a central role this gospel ministry has in what is near and dear to us, and what is the expected modus operandi of our church. You see, we're a Baptist church, Baptist by name, but Baptist also by distinction, and so this is a church in which the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. We are autonomous. We are elder-ruled and congregationally governed. No higher body or grouping ever tells us what to do here. It's the members who together decide on all matters relevant to the ministry of the church. We recognize the priesthood of every believer. That is the understanding that we all stand upon the same ground in light of the cross. And you don't need anyone to tell you what God's Word says, nor anyone to convey your prayers to God. 
We also, however, do recognize two church offices, the office of the elder and the office of the deacon. We cherish the truth of individual soul liberty in this place and seek not to assume the rule of anyone's conscience nor play the rule of God in another person's life. We rather encourage every believer to bear the responsibilities for their own words and for their own actions and admonish those who neglect to do so when their words or their actions have negative implications upon this local assembly, whether it's that's in regards to its testimony or indeed its purity. We're an assembly made up only of saved church members. Unbelievers are, of course, welcomed in this place. Their presence is very much appreciated in this place. But in no way do we countenance an unbeliever playing any role in the ministry of this church nor being involved in any decision-making processes within this church. We practice two church ordinances, both given by Christ and modeled by Him in His earthly ministry. The first of these being baptism, a public expression of one's faith. Not a means of saving grace, but only ever a testimony of the transformation that has been effected in one's life by the gospel. The other is, of course, the table of remembrance, where in obedience to His command, believers who make up this local assembly come together to commemorate our Lord, to celebrate His finished work, to consecrate afresh our lives to Him and to confidently express our hope in His soon return. We identify that at the table at which we gather, it is only till He come. And then finally, we practice and we preach the message of separation between the ministry of this local assembly and the functions and outworkings of government. Notice in all of those things, those which make up the distinctions of a Baptist assembly how central a role the gospel plays in all of these. We are constituted as a church because of the gospel. We seek locally to express our faith in Christ and engage in gospel ministry near and far because of the gospel. We can only recognize the priesthood of every believer because of the gospel. The two church offices and the two church ordinances are both meaningless and worthless apart from the gospel. A sea of church membership is only possible because of the gospel. And the separation of church and state is so closely guarded and consistently expected all for the sake of the gospel. Now consider our own church constitution, a document which is of course, of much less importance than the Word of God. But nevertheless, it does provide an invaluable guide, guidance. It does provide invaluable guidance for the day-to-day -day affairs of this assembly and the expectations of those who call this their church home and indeed those who hold office within this assembly. All of the salient points of our church constitution, its binding guidelines, are of course taken directly from the Word of God, but it's just one sentence that I draw your attention to, because this is essential for our considerations tonight. For the constitution of Lurgan Baptist Church states that it's our understanding as an assembly that it is the supreme mission of the people of God in this age to preach the gospel. That's what our constitution says. That's what we believe. 
And so you see here, both biblically and practically, here at Lurgan Baptist Church, we believe that it's your responsibility and mine in our individual lives, and it's our responsibility together as we labor for him to preach the gospel. It's to be our primary focus. Why is this? I trust I speak for us all. Whenever I say that we all believe to this very hour that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that we recognize that we can't save people, we can't do anything to change their eternal destiny. But as that old Southern gospel song goes, we know a man who can. And so as we preach Christ, as we preach that he died according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the Scriptures, we believe that it truly is the message which is able to heal the brokenhearted, to bring deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and the setting at liberty them that are bruised. It's all because of the gospel. So unashamedly, we declare that Lurgan Baptist Church is a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And for as long as this eldership serves God in this place and seeks to lead this flock, it will always be a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And listen, I don't say that as some act of bravado. That's not an opportunity to beat my chest or pound a pulpit. And I say it not because I want some pat on the back or the well done of like-minded men. I say it because as much as I agree with all of Paul's teaching we have touched on already, I also agree with his bold assessment that this ministry is one of absolute necessity. 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 in the verse 16 says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And yet, here is exactly where we find ourselves in 2024. A nation full of woe because the gospel is not preached. The church of Jesus Christ in our nation, full of woe because of the willful neglect of preaching the gospel. Do you know that only 53% of the UK population profess that they even know a practicing evangelical Christian? In a world where millions have yet to hear the gospel, and whenever you hear missionary organizations, as we did recently, proclaim those statistics where there is so many people in the world unreached, that is an identification of countries and people groups and language groups that have yet to receive the clear presentation of the gospel in their own language or indeed within the borders of their own country. And those statistics are accurate. I make not light of them, nor seek to undermine them in any way. But I also remind you that there is an unreached mass of people in our land, a land professed to be a Christian nation, who have yet to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. In fact, it's estimated that 31% of people in the UK have never heard the gospel explained to them. Consider that. 
We're not an unreached people. We're not an unreached nation. I'm not seeking to place that tag over us, nor indeed to undermine the thrust that other missionary organizations are making to truly reach unreached people groups. No, but I am reminding you that here in our own nation, almost a third of its inhabitants have yet, it is estimated tonight, to hear a clear presentation of the gospel with their own ears. If you take that to be accurate, and I have no reason to doubt that it is, then 14,514 people in Lurgan tonight have never heard the gospel. That's who we're responsible for. And that's who we all together will one day give an account for. 14,514 people. Two-thirds of Christians in the UK tell the story that they came to faith in Jesus Christ before the age of 21. But cast your mind back to last week, and there we identified the statistic that the average church in the UK is only reaching 22 children. In a six-month period in 2022, only 55% of Protestant churchgoers <coughs> recorded an answer professing that they had heard the gospel explained from the pulpit of the church that they attended. 55%. Look in the church pages of publications, whether it be your local newspaper or newspapers or information booklets that are shared with communities. And you will see that gospel meetings are rare. Evening services are diminishing. And churches largely are in survival mode. And yet a survey not even 16 months old of European church leaders said that from over 60,000 leaders surveyed, 81% of them identified that the biggest threat to their church and the church as a whole was a lack of the gospel message and the proliferation of false gospels are watered-down Gospels. Now look, it would be so easy to take all of that and now just proceed to go on a rant serving only to tear other fellowships down or attack others who hold positions similar to mine. But let's do something else. Let's ask a rhetorical question. Who here has, an, who here has attended a church service of any description, whether it be a funeral service, a youth service, a wedding, a child's dedication or confirmation, whatever the case may have been. And at that service, you have been ever so consciously aware that what has been glaringly missing is a clear presentation of the gospel. Now, you might accuse me of saying that's only anecdotal evidence. 
that's not firm facts upon which to build an hypothesis. Perhaps. But I would be confident in guessing that this anecdotal evidence would be the same from the overwhelming majority of us here tonight. And indeed, if I'm right in my assessment of the times in which we live, I would go as far to say as there is a good chance that it would be unanimous. That we all have attended a service held in a church building or under the auspices of a church and the message of the gospel has not been preached at those proceedings. You see, I fear we live in a generation where much of what is done in the name of a church is not the true work of the church. Much of what is done in the name of Christ is not the message of Christ at all. And people all across our land leave church meetings on a regular basis where the gospel has not been preached. Where the exposure of the sinful condition of man's heart has not been evident. Where the solution and the person and finished work of Jesus Christ has not been presented. Where the invitation to accept of his gift of salvation and eternal life has not been extended. There's no preaching of the cross. There's no testimony of the debt being paid. There's no proclamation of his death and his glorious resurrection. There's no rejoicing in the fact that as he died, he died for all. And as he rose, he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And that now he lives in the power of an endless life, willing and able to save to the uttermost all who will come by faith unto him. The gospel is missing. The gospel is neglected. So we ask ourselves this question as we have done so consistently through this study, what saith the Scriptures? Turn to 2 Timothy in the chapter 4. And I suggest to you that the Scripture says just exactly everything that I have just said. In reality, the order is reversed because I'm just saying exactly what the Scriptures have said. I'm not trying to claim the preeminence here in any shape or form. I'm simply pointing out the facts of the days in which we live and now is seeking to show you clearly how that God's Word got it right all along. 2 Timothy in the chapter 4 says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the, dead, or shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. To me, those three words, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine, characterize gospel ministry. may not for you, but they do so clearly for me. Notice in verse 3, here's where the clear reference to the times in which we live emerges. For the time will come, I would say the time has arrived, when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. I would suggest to you tonight that these times 
are those times. Times whenever men and women don't want sound doctrine, don't want to be confronted with the truth, all they want is fables. Presentations containing enough moral goodness to pass a basic sniff test, but never enough to challenge, to convict, or to correct. Paul saw such a day coming in his times, and truly we note that in the last of the last days, such a day has arrived, and sadly, this day has come not because the world has gotten its way, but because weak-minded believers and spineless ministers have gotten theirs. You see, the rot began on the inside. I can't believe he preaches so strongly. We need to be a church preaching love here. People don't need to be hearing that they're headed to hell all the time. Ministers began shying away from the hard truths, the solemn truths. They forgot about the necessity of their calling. They feared offending man more than offending God. And so today, the gospel message is served in diet form. Gospel zero, you might call it. Because it's unfashionable to consume the real version. Oh, the sugar tax is in place everywhere we go. But for some reason, it never applies in a church. And I'm not talking about the abundance of Haribo that the kids get on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about the fact that the message proclaimed from pulpits like this has been so sweetened up for the hearer that it's unrecognizable in its current form. Blessings are promised, but without obedience. Comfort is delved out like it's confetti without sacrifice. And happiness is expected without repentance. You see, in this modern age, it's more acceptable to present Christ as a kind, loving, and compassionate Savior. Someone who only came to make mankind happy and successful. But what about the reality that he came to seek and to save that which was lost? What about the truth that he is described as being the Lamb of God who would take away sin? What about the, uh, the evidence that he dealt with men and women at their point of need? Oh yes, but he always focused upon their greatest need, the need of the heart. What about the reality that Scripture so clearly reminds us of that he didn't come just so that we could feel better about ourselves? He didn't come so that we could be content with ourselves. No, He came to expose our sin. He came to expose our selfishness. And He came to teach us to detest sin, our sin, and to cast ourselves upon His mercy and grace for forgiveness. He demanded nothing less than complete obedience. And once obedience had been observed, then He required loyalty. He came that we might die to sin, die to ourselves, and live unto Him. 
And the gospel of this age with no requirement of true genuine repentance, no requirement of total life transformation, rather just a general belief that God will receive anyone just the way that they are in the end. Why? Because His love and His grace necessitates that He will grant forgiveness to them all, no matter however they come or no matter whenever they come. This is being freely peddled far and wide and is deceiving people in their masses into thinking that they are sorted, into thinking that their eternal future is secure, when all along they have been deceived into receiving something that's never able to provide the cure. And so Scripture is revealing to us the course of the age, The coming of days which are now our reality. So how are we to live in such an age? How are we to ensure that in an age where the gospel is not prominent nor preached, as indeed it should be, how are we to ensure that in our lives personally and in our labors together corporately, we keep the gospel as our primary focus? Come back to Philippians in the chapter 2. Philippians in the chapter 2, and we see there, of course, given to us the mind that should be in us, the mind which was in Christ Jesus. A mind that was willing to be obedient. A mind that was willing to be humble. A mind that was willing then to go to even the very death of the cross. We come across one chapter to the chapter 3. And having explained this and laid this out for the believers at Philippi, we then see Paul's own declaration of what he knows to be the secret so that he might labor consistently and continually in that very same work. Philippians in the chapter 3 and the verse 10, that I may know him. If you and I are to keep the gospel as our primary focus individually and corporately, then we must know him. You see, you might have anticipated that here I would say the words of Paul that we read together in 2 Timothy in the chapter 4, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and doctrine. Sound advice, undoubtedly. An essential admonition to continue in, in the gospel ministry, undoubtedly. Or perhaps you might have expected a mention of that further exhortation in that same chapter, do the work of an evangelist, make frail proof of thy ministry. Again, sound advice. But it's this stated desire of the apostle here in Philippians in the chapter 3 that I submit to you as the open secret of ensuring that we could preach the word in season and out of season. 
Ensuring that we can reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering. Yes, even in times whenever very few are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, whenever the world at large is opposed to the message that we proclaim. And yes, whenever we are seeking to do the work of the evangelist and making full proof of our ministry, it is the state of desire of the apostle that keeps that fire burning, keeps that desire at the very forefront of our minds that we might know him. This is a state of desire of a man who's waiting to see what will become of him in a Roman prison. This is a state of desire of an apostle who is very much in the twilight moments of his ministry. But this is the absolute essential requirement if you and I are to successfully keep the gospel central. And to see the power of the gospel unleashed once again in our town and in our district. It is that we might know him. It's a highlighting of an essential truth of the Christian life. For it's one thing to say that you met the Lord. And oh, what a joy and a delight to be able to say beyond any shadow of a doubt that we met him. And in that meeting, he changed our lives. He changed our eternal destiny. But I tell you tonight that it's an entirely different thing to say that you know him. Tonight we must recognize that if this was a state of desire of an aged apostle who had been through so many highs and lows already, a man who had seen so much accomplished already, how much more should it be our desire to know him? How essential to our gospel ministry is the knowledge of this desire to know him. See here how Paul wants there to be nothing about Christ that he did not know. His person, his work, his power. He goes on to say that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. So to know him is to know his resurrection power. And rising Christ rose for our justification. And in his resurrection, a message as to the supremacy of his power was communicated. He defeated sin. The end of sin, remember, is death. And so as his lifeless body lay prone in a garden tomb, no proof was being provided in that moment of his finished work, nor the success of his mission. But in rising again the third day, he conquered death, hell, and the grave forever. And so tonight we can rightly say that death holds no fear for us, hell is no home for us, and the grave has no claim on us. For as he rose, so too we will rise also. And coming then to a fuller knowledge of him means that you and I consider afresh the great truths of his resurrection. We are comforted in the truth that he lives. Surely then also our faith is energized in the knowledge that the power of sin has been defeated in our lives because of his resurrection. But to know him is also to know his sufferings. Oh, the pain of Calvary. The sufferings of the one who was despised and rejected of men. 
the sufferings of the one who was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The sufferings of the one who was made sin for us. As upon him our guilt was laid and the billows of God's wrath was poured out upon him. Tonight we are reminded that if you would know him, tonight he says that if you would know me, then you must know my sufferings. And surely there is a direct connection to his exhortation as given to us in Mark's gospel that we are to be those who deny ourselves to take up our cross and to follow him. That just as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2 that we are crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And so, friend, tonight, understand that the cross that you are called to take up is not the minor inconveniences of life. It's not even the major difficult realities of life. There is nothing symbolic or allegorical that's meant by taking up your cross. It is a literal charge if we are to know him. In the days of Christ, our cross was only ever carried by those who were going to die. It was carried by those who anticipated death by the most horrific and cruel means of that day. So today, if we are to know him, if we are truly to enter into his sufferings for you and for me, then this is a call where dying to self is an absolute minimum but being willing to die for the sake of the gospel is a distinct possibility. Immediately, undoubtedly, we recoil in this generation. Immediately, we say never. How could that possibly be the outcome in our Western world? But surely that exposes the danger that the slumbering church of Jesus Christ finds itself in in this generation? Could it be that the gospel has been so watered down? Could it be that churches are so active in so many other things now that the gospel's been crowded out? Its mention, its message is no longer that which offends it's no longer that which is confrontational. Somehow the church of Jesus Christ in our land has managed to engineer an environment where the world and the church can coexist. The message we preach is largely socially permissible. But if we are to know him, if we are to truly understand more of his sufferings, if we are to truly grasp the reason that he went to such lengths to provide lost humanity with a way of salvation, if we were to truly appreciate just how serious a responsibility it is to be charged with the task of preaching the gospel and how desperately our family, our friends, and our neighbors need to hear his message, then it will necessitate that we are willing to die to ourselves as a bare minimum 
but yes, even perhaps be willing to lay down our very lives for the gospel's sake. Then thirdly, to know him is to have a heart for the lost. The phrase found there, being made conformable unto his death, communicates a message of grasping more and more the reason why he died. The reason that he was willing to die. The reason that the Father sent his only Son into the world to die for you and for me. That reason is, of course, that he died to save sinners like you and me. And tonight, the heart of a loving Savior has lost none of its desire. If we would know him, then we must understand that more. We must recognize that it's his desire that we give our all to reach as many as we can with this message of salvation. We would pray more for our lost family. We would weep for our husbands and for our wives and for our sons and for our daughters. But yet tonight, the church of Jesus Christ is characterized by slothfulness, comfortableness. Don't disturb me is our motto. Don't ask me to be inconvenienced for the gospel's sake. Tonight, prayer meetings are marked by deadness. Men and women content to let an hour pass by and say, i done my duty. But where are the tears? Where are those who come to a prayer meeting and say like Jacob, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Except you answer my prayer, except you save my loved one. Where are those tonight who even here in this assembly weep as Christ did and say, O Lurgan, Lurgan, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wing, but ye would not? Where are those who say, O breath of life, come sweeping through us? Take my life and let it be. Holy, consecrated Lord to thee. Brothers and sisters, oh, that we may know him. This week I was rereading a book by A.W. Tozer, In the Pursuit of God. If you've never read it, I highly recommend that you do. But in that book, he penned these words. O God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed at my lack of desire, O God. Try you, God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty. Show me thy glory. 
I pray thee, so that I may know thee. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me the grace to rise and to follow thee up from the misty lowland where I have wandered so long. God grant that we have a desire to know him. God grant that as we come to know more of his resurrection power, as we come to rejoice more even in the work that he done on our behalf and to truly enter into his sufferings and as we are made more conformable unto his death, that as we know him, the gospel work here will abound. 